You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 79, Germany Prepares for War Part 2, The Plan. This week, a big thank you goes out to Joe and Mike for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. Members get access to ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes, plus special member episodes roughly every month. You can head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more. This week, I would also like to give a shout out to the Maritime History Podcast. It is back after a bit of a hiatus and is, at the moment, covering the maritime history of ancient Greece in the run-up to the Peloponnesian War. That's again the Maritime History Podcast, so check it out. Back to our history now. If Germany wanted to achieve its rearmament goals in the last four years of the 1930s, it needed an economic plan. This plan needed to have two high-level goals. The first was to optimize as much as possible every domestic resource, This included pouring money and time into creating substitutes for items that it did not have domestic sources of, and this would also enable the second goal to be more easily accomplished. That second goal was to guarantee that for resources that were imported into Germany, they were both properly prioritized and properly used. Fighting against these two goals were several problems that would have to be dealt with. First of all, there were shortages of skilled workers, especially in several critical industries, And there was also a shortage in the ability to import resources due to a lack of foreign exchange. The person put in charge of the plan to try and solve these issues was Hermann Goering, and at least if you ask Hitler, the success or failure of the program would dictate the future survival of the nation. We spoke a bit about the problems that Germany would have with foreign exchange in the last episode, but there were also several domestic challenges that they would have to overcome as well. As more production capacity and raw materials were moved over to armament production, or were used as exports, civilian consumption of goods had to be curtailed. This curtailment required reversing trends of the previous years, which had seen domestic consumption growing as the German economy had come out of the Great Depression. Goering would bring together a team of technical experts within the Luftwaffe, primarily to work on the ever-present problem of synthetic fuels, but also to try to create a more generic economic plan that could be put in place. It would be from this team of planners that the basics of the four-year plan would be determined. The result would be an outline that did not focus on armament production specifically, but was designed to solve a few of Germany's long-term resource problems, primarily around just general domestic production capabilities, and then the production of fuel, oil, and food. 
The four-year plan, which would eventually be created out of these plans that Goering had, would be introduced at the Nuremberg Rally in September 1936. Instead of making references to preparations for war, the public message reached back to that domestic consumption. And instead, you know, the, the program was sort of spoken of as being designed to increase the standard of living for German citizens. It was also trumpeted as another way for more Germans to be provided with jobs. With the plan announced, and it having the very clear support of Hitler, the question became, what exactly was Hitler putting his support behind? To answer this question, at least in terms of details, would have been difficult for many people in September 1936, because there were very few copies of the memorandum that Hitler wrote about the program, possibly as few as two, which Goering and the war minister Blomberg had in their possession. Limiting the firm knowledge that others had about the program allowed Goering quite a bit of leeway in its implementation. But even if Goering sort of had control of some of the details, the broad strokes were well known, no devaluation, and a priority on rearmament both in the short term and long term. Goering would be given formal control over the program on October 18th, which essentially gave him almost total control over all economic aspects within Germany. This drastically reduced the power of the Minister of Economics, Helmar Schacht, and moved control of events out of the Ministry of Economics and into Goering's hands. This represented a huge victory for Goering and was a culmination of his efforts to sabotage Schacht's position. Schacht also held beliefs that were not fully in sync with the direction the Nazi government wanted to move, as he had more traditional views of economics and was far less of kind of a blind follower of Nazi economic ideology and this was used as one of the wedges to push him out of power. With the control of the four-year plan put in Goering's hands and the program publicly announced, let's talk about how it planned to accomplish its goals. The plan called for all domestic production programs to be maximized as much as possible, which would hopefully reduce the need to import goods that Germany could produce itself. This would be accomplished by removing any and all cost barriers, that had previously prevented increases in production and production capacity. This was very important in some specific industries, where one of the problems that had previously held back domestic production was the fact that it was more expensive to gather and process domestic materials than it was to import them from another nation. Iron is an example of this, or was an example of this type of material, with the specific composition of some German iron ore deposits being very costly to process and take from iron ore into finished product. Under the new guidelines as part of the four-year plan, this iron ore was going to be processed regardless of the cost, or if it might have been cheaper to import. Attempting to capitalize on domestic resources would allow for some foreign exchange to be freed up, which would be used on a variety of items that could not be produced in Germany or in the case of food, would be used to make up for shortfalls that were expected as domestic production was increased through a series of programs. Along with maximizing production of some natural resources, there was also going to be a huge amount of money put into producing and perfecting synthetic materials, especially fuel and rubber. Both of these materials had existing processes that allowed them to be created synthetically. And in fact, both processes had been invented in Germany with the process for rubber being developed in 1909 and then fuel in 1913. However, to try and replace all consumption with these synthetic options was simply too costly before 1936. With the new changes under the four-year plan, they very quickly became two of the most important points of emphasis, 
with the production capacity of both seen as critical, as any war that would begin after 1936 would be a war in which the production of fuel and rubber was incredibly important, and Germany might be fully dependent on synthetic production. Synthetic fuel was made through the Burgius process, named after its inventor Friedrich Burgius. I'm not going to pretend to understand the chemistry involved, but the process involved taking coal, crushing it into a fine powder, adding a catalyst, and then applying heat. By 1936, Germany was already the world's leading producer of synthetic fuel, producing 1.78 million tons in 1936. But this covered only about a third of the total fuel required in Germany at the time, and that was not taking into account any increases that would happen in times of war. Part of the four-year plan was to massively increase the levels of fuel production, bringing annual production up to about 5.4 million tons per year. Building out the large amount of infrastructure needed to make this expansion happen would be the most monetarily intensive part of the four-year plan. This was also just one example of the types of investments made in production of various goods, which would be the bulk of the spending. This spending would sit alongside and would often come into conflict with the rearmament goals that were also in place. When it came to armament production, many of the monetary restrictions of previous years had been removed, and this certainly did help but it did not solve all the problems. The goal was to build as much as materials and labor would allow, regardless of the cost. But removing any possible price concerns allowed various military arms to introduce new designs and order huge numbers of them. This would happen, for example, in Goering's domain in the Luftwaffe, with the announcement on December 25th that all Luftwaffe production facilities would from that date forward be on a wartime footing, with the goal of maximizing production output over the following months. However, they couldn't produce anything if they didn't have the resources to do so. As soon as the plan was announced and changes began to be put into action, events started to occur that were not always according to that plan. When it comes to looking at how the German economy reacted to these changes, it's very kind of challenging to talk about every type of good or resource or even possible industry, so we're just going to focus in on one, steel. The German steel industry would experience a round of panic buying as soon as it was clear that new government restrictions and limitations would soon be put in place. There were suddenly orders being placed for hundreds of thousands of tons of steel, none of which were even remotely possible to fulfill, in the hopes that the private companies would be able to get that steel before their access to it was limited by future restrictions. Within a more free market economy, what might have happened in this case was that the steel mills would have raised prices or even allowed purchases, purchasers to pay additional fees to expedite their specific orders. However, this was not allowed by the government due to the concern that if price increases were allowed, they would spiral out into inflation, which would affect other areas of the economy. There would eventually be an outright ban on all price increases on November 26, 1936. The removal of the normal means of scarcity regulation, which would have involved raising or lowering prices to lower or raise demand, meant that there had to be another method of determining how goods were used and parceled out, which meant rationing. Over the early months of 1937, rationing on many metals started, with steel rationing beginning on February 23rd. Whenever rationing began on a good, and strict government control was implemented, existing orders for that good might be cancelled, which would happen for steel at this same time. 
This kind of clearing of the ledgers allowed the government to more precisely control what steel was being used for without having to contend with months of orders that sat unfulfilled. Overall, steel is also an interesting kind of resource to discuss in this manner, especially when looking at this specific time period, because it was a resource that was both very obviously absolutely critical to rearmament, like there's very few things in rearmament that does not use at least some steel, but it was also an important German export. This meant that when steel rationing began, a decision had to be made about how to utilize the limited stock of steel that was either available or could be produced. The decision that was landed on was that steel exports would be protected and continued, which would be used to bring in more foreign exchange that could be used for other goods. This was a policy decision that Schacht heavily advocated for, and even with his fading influence and limited power of the finance ministry, it was one that was put in place. The size of the export allocation for steel was about 500,000 tons every month, which was more than that given to the entire rearmament effort at this time. This meant that domestic production of goods that required steel took a hit, and actually there was a blanket reduction of 15% across all rearmament activities that consumed steel. Schacht felt that this sacrifice was mandatory because there was a large and growing market for German steel on the international market. This demand was boosted by their rearmament efforts of other nations, along with general global economic recovery that had been ongoing for much of the 1930s. Moving so much of German steel into exports created a shortfall among steel that was desired for rearmament, even after the blanket reduction. By February 1937, the army wanted 270,000 tons of steel every month, but they were only getting about 195,000. This is a great example of how, at times, government control of rearmament efforts and the economy can have somewhat counterintuitive results. Just because the government was now in greater control did not mean that suddenly a huge amount of raw material was available to rearmament efforts. There were other concerns that overrode the immediate rearmament efforts. This was probably quite frustrating to the planners and leaders of the Wehrmacht, but it was the new reality that they could do very little to alter. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, 
over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. While the relationship between the military's rearmament efforts and the new economic plan was in flux or, or maybe contentious, there were also some new realities within the German economy that were also shifting. When the Nazi government came to power, it did so largely with the support of the German business community, and especially the larger industrialists. Before 1933, German business leaders saw the communists as their primary enemy within German society, and so a group like the Nazis, whose anti-communist credentials were spotless, was seen as a counterbalance against growing communist support. After January 1933, there was for several years good relations between those same business leaders and the new regime. When it came to the business environment, the Nazi leadership did exactly what they said they were going to do. The communists and then the socialists were robbed of all their power and then they were outlawed. Unions and other worker organizations were removed and reformed under the control of the government, removing any risk of worker actions. This was followed by a period where the profits for those businesses skyrocketed as the German economy began to recover. By the time that the second four-year plan was put into place and the relationships between the government and the industrial leaders began to change, it was already at a point where it was simply too late for the business community to steer the ship in any way as the Nazi regime was firmly in place and had solidified its control. This fact would become more important as the second four-year plan was implemented, because Goering would very quickly begin to consolidate more and more power within his personal sphere. As Goering and in general the Nazi party gathered more and more of this power to themselves in 1936 and 1937, they were able to finally take a more proactive stance against the industrialists. Up to that point, there was a general resistance to state control from business leaders, and this resistance had been successful. This would then be used as one of the excuses for the increase in government control of private industry, as it proved unable to meet the goals of various Nazi economic plans. Now, in reality, those goals, due to all the problems that we've discussed, were probably totally unattainable, regardless of how industry was organized, but that didn't really matter. Any resistance to the desires of the Nazi party from any group within Germany would never be tolerated indefinitely, and this would result in the creation of the Reichswerk. The Reichswerk was a company created and owned by the government, which was designed to replace and supplement existing private industry. Its first target was the iron industry, and it would take control of all ironworks, and the owners would be compensated only with minor shareholdings in the new company. When this was announced, Goering would tell the assembled industrialists that, quote, it is not important that you fill my ears with complaints, but that you pull yourselves together, end quote. The Reichswerk would then go on to take control of all industry and capture territories like Austria and Czechoslovakia, and this meant that over time, Reichswerk would continue to make up more and more of German heavy industry, while the more traditional industrial regions like the Ruhr and the, and the businesses that had been built there saw its government support, then its power, then its economic abilities reduced. While initiatives like the Reichswerk were put in place and would eventually take over massive pieces of the German industrial machine, early 1937 would be a critical time for German rearmament as a whole. 
Almost immediately after the four-year plan started, there were already some concerns that goals for the German economy and for rearmament were not going to be met. One of the challenges was the friction between the goals of the government and the military, with the military strongly valuing short-term rearmament objectives while the government was investing in longer-term economic projects. By late spring 1937, army leadership would be reporting that the goals for the next three years were in serious danger. If the military was to be ready to fight by 1940, it would need more resources than what it was getting. If no other resources were available, then quite simply the German military would not be ready. A few months later, the war ministry would write a memorandum, which was circulated to the government, making it clear that the, ministry, that the ministry's frustrations were not just that resources were not available in the correct quantities, that could be in some ways understood, but that they were being wasted on other initiatives. Part of the memo would say, quote, The troops do not understand why the state, the Nazi party, and business are permitted to undertake large construction projects when, for lack of barracks, they are spending the winter under canvas on the training ground, end quote. These decisions about where to put resources would have real impacts on rearmament production that occurred in 1937, and instead of reaching new heights, which was required to meet the goals of 1936, armament production in 1937 was, in the best of circumstances, at the same level as previous years. In other areas, production would actually decrease, which would happen in such important areas as aircraft production, which would decrease between April 1937 and mid-1938. The math on what needed to happen was clear. If the Wehrmacht was to reach the goal of completing the 1936 program by 1940, they would have to be given massively larger quantities of resources. Sticking with steel as our example here, by the second half of 1937, the belief was that the Wehrmacht would need over 500 tons of steel every month in order to meet its targets, which was 70% more than they were actually getting. This amount of steel was available, but giving it over to rearmament would mean completely gutting the export allowances that were being used to pay for other imported goods. These exports were being zealously protected by Schacht and the finance ministry, and the imports that, were, that they paid for were just as desired as the initial steel was. High-level concerns like this, with very powerful members of German industry, government, military, and the party all being involved, would eventually end up in only one place on the desk of Hitler himself. His involvement and the decisions that it would result in during this period can only be considered within the wider world of politics at this time. It was during this period of late 1937 that concrete plans for the later war would begin to not just crystallize within Hitler's government and Hitler's own mind, but also begin to be communicated to the military leadership. But before we get to those communications, which would put added emphasis on meeting rearmament requirements, let's look a bit at some of those developments. While changes were being made in the German economy in late 1936 and early 1937, this was also a period of diplomatic change for Germany. On November 27th, Hitler would put his stamp of approval on the Anti-Comintern Pact, the agreement between Germany and Japan, that if either nation was attacked by the Soviet Union, the other would not provide any assistance to the Soviets. This was an important symbolic agreement, although, as would be shown after 1939, the ability of either nation to provide real assistance to the other was limited. Along with better relations with Japan, which were of dubious military value, the far more important relations with Italy continued to improve and solidify. It would be during this period that Mussolini would say in a speech that the line between Berlin and Rome was an axis round which all those European states which are animated by a desire for collaboration and peace can revolve. 
this being the origin of the term Axis, which would be used over the years that followed both among German and Italian propaganda as well as among their enemies. Along with diplomatic relations and how they would support future German actions, we also have some view into Hitler's mind during late 1937, due to the many conversations that were had with the military about future plans. It was, of course, crucial that Hitler inform the military about what would be required of them in the future, and this would occur several times. An interesting thing to keep in mind here is that these conversations were occurring in late 1937. So that's months before the Anschluss and almost a full year before the Munich Agreement. During November 1937, Hitler would outline these plans for the military leaders, and the plan was one in two stages. The first was that over the coming years, Germany would expand in Eastern Europe, but it would do so without starting a general sort of First World War style European-wide conflict. The reasons for this expansion were not necessarily to solve the problem of space or Lebensraum, which was certainly a long-term goal, but for short-term, it was all about resources. The goal was to expand German control to the point where there were enough resources within its borders so that at a later date, a major war could be launched. It would be this major war, certainly with the Soviet Union against the communists, probably with the British Empire, maybe even the Americans, that would be decisive. Of course, Germany would prevail, of course, and the resulting victory would solve all of Germany's problems of territory and space into the far future. Ignoring that future major conflict for a moment, the first phase of this expansion movement is far more intertwined with the rearmament discussion. Hitler believed that Germany had to be ready to act if circumstances allowed for the absorption of Austria and Czechoslovakia, opportunities that Hitler and groups within those countries would go to great lengths to manufacture throughout 1938. Poland was also another possible target, with the goal being, as with the others, to expand German territory into Poland without a major war starting. For all of these efforts, the German military had to be ready to act, but it was preparing for a limited war against much smaller neighboring countries, not a European-wide conflict. But this did not prevent the military leaders at this time from being very concerned about the possibilities, which would be a great point of disagreement between Hitler and his generals over the course of 1938 and into 1939. They were strongly opposed to any early use of force before the final rearmament goals were reached in the early 1940s, and to even risk such a conflict starting seemed like a major sort of problem. When looking at the risks of a conflict, the current state of rearmament activities, the current state of the German military, and the economic situation, both the military and Hitler had different opinions about what needed to change. I like this tiny quote from Wages of Destruction by Adam Tews here, quote, The generals responded by adjusting time horizons. Hitler responded by shifting the parameters, end quote. Essentially, Hitler saw a goal, and achieving that goal was constrained by 1937 sort of resource problems that Germany could not, within its current confines, solve. He therefore shifted planning and accepted greater possible risk in the short term while obtaining that greater territory and resources, believing that it would still not cause a wider war, but willing to risk it at a position of less strength than hoped for because that's what he needed to do. On the other hand, the military put rearmament before any expansion, and with the resource challenges, that meant that they wanted to push the date further in the future, not accept greater risk in the short term. This was also one of the major reasons there would be a large difference in the desired goals within the German economy in 1937. The military wanted to focus on short-term goals with the goal of being ready for war in the immediate future, 
This would lower the risk during these expansion activities, while the government, through the four-year plan, was focusing more resources on the long-term goals around that possible 1943 conflict, accepting greater short-term risk for less long-term risk. This difference in mindset was actually really important because the long-term goals that the government wanted required massive investment, both in terms of money and raw materials, and it was all about future manufacturing capabilities. But there weren't enough resources to do both things. It was either short-term rearmament or long-term manufacturing. For example, three of the largest Reichsworks facilities would soak up more money than the entire aircraft industry between 1933 and 1937. Similar massive investments would also be made in explosive manufacturing and agricultural production. All of these investments were long-term, which did nothing for the German military strength in the last years of the 1930s. This would continue to frustrate Wehrmacht leaders, but there was little they could do. They would have even less influence after the Blomberg and Fritsch situation that we covered in the early Munich episodes. This robbed the German military of whatever power it may have had over events. Next episode, we will look at the next phase of German rearmament, which would begin in 1938, as some of those territorial expansions that Hitler so desired began to happen with the Anschluss and then Czechoslovakia. These new territories would then be exploited for the benefit of the German economy and the benefit of Germany's long-term and short-term economic plans.